Hello, and welcome to the Real Tech, Real Life podcast, a conversational medley with four women who've been there, done that, and lived to tell about it. Welcome to episode number three of the Real Tech, Real Life podcast. I'm Lori Williams, and today, as always, I'm joined by Lori Asbury, Miriam Neruzzi, and Andrea Giametti. In the last episode, we started on a series of discussions about the major life cycles of a professional services firm in the tech industry. Over the next series of podcasts, we're going to be talking about the four major life cycles, lead to order, scope to delivery, order to cash, and hire to retire. In last week's episode, we started the lead to order series and really focused on what a customer should think about as they go through the buying cycle. So this week, we're going to flip that around and uh, rephrase the question, uh, talking again, lead to order in the sales process. What advice would we as folks who have owned delivery uh, for lots of projects, uh, what advice would we give to customers uh, as they go through the procurement process, things that they should look for and, and uh, questions that they should ask. So, um, you know, Miriam and Lori, I'll start with, with you guys. Uh, what, what advice would you give to a customer who's looking to procure project or deliverable work from an SI? Um, <clears throat> Lori, I'm going to kind of fresh on my mind. I would say preparedness as the first step is the customer ready to undertake whatever it is that they want to procure? Uh, oftentimes, I think uh, we get in a situation where the customer feels that they're ready, um, but they don't, they're not really ready. They don't have our, all their things lined up. So preparedness is what I would say is um, the first thing that I think a customer should think about. Am I ready to start this project? Um, as I embark on this procurement? Do I have all my uh, things uh, not lined up? Do I have my documentation? Do I have my people? So I, I would kind of say preparedness is what I would say um, as a customer is what I should be thinking about. And can, can you tell when you walk in the door whether they're ready or not? Yes. Yes. I think um, I, I, you can often tell by the kind of questions that you get during the period where you are about to start a project. Um, the prepared customers are the ones who are sending you emails. If you haven't already, they're asking you, okay, uh, what can I do to be prepared? What can I do to be ready? And I think those are the customers that are oftentimes, they've thought about this. They know that time is of the essence. They really want to uh, hit the road running. Uh, but the customers don't ask you anything uh, are the ones that you wonder. And then obviously it becomes pretty obvious when you're on site and um, you ask for a piece of documentation and they're scrambling to try to figure out where to get it or they don't have the right players in the room as you try to kick off the project. So, um, yeah, you can definitely tell. Um, and it becomes a snowball, too. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, that's the first sign. It's the first sign. Obviously, things can change, um, but oftentimes it's the first sign that the customer might not be ready to kick this thing off. Right. And Lori, what, what sort of things um, uh, have you seen? Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important to be prepared, not just with having the information, um, but having the right people involved and engaged and being able to communicate to your SI what your challenges are, what your look ahead is for 
um, you know, what what challenges you have upcoming in in uh, in, in the near future. So I think that's that is really key. I think um, it's also being prepared to really drill into what your SI has done before and what significant recent relevant uh, work really relates to what it is that you want to do. That makes sense. I think one of the things that's changed as well, we talk a lot about, obviously, we've, we've been a part of a cloud systems integrator. Um, and, you know, in the days before cloud, the first first good percentage of a project was really about, you know, what kind of hardware you need, what kind of, what, what do you need to do to get in place so you can actually start the project? And mm-hmm. I think that the one of the things that I've, I've you know, learned over the years, I think, with Aperio is when you're looking at a cloud platform, you don't have that luxury anymore. you got to have your business processes lined up. You've got to have your people lined up because you don't have that luxury of, okay, let's go figure out what the sizing is going to be. Um, while, and we can worry about everything else. You start, you know, day one talking about the, the business enablement. And I think that um, customers often, often forget that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely um, agree. And I think something that Lori says triggers something in my mind is from a preparedness perspective, one of the things that I've seen also be uh, generally uh, and uh, something that I would love to get from a customer beforehand is that for the most part, it's not often, um, it, this is not the first rodeo even for the customer. The customer has dealt with other SIs before. Sometimes you go in to replace other SI. Um, and uh, I think, that information uh, transfer of knowledge on what worked and what didn't work, it's huge in making a project be on the right setting for success. So that's that dialogue around, okay, yeah, I mean, and, and a lot of these things get communicated during the sales process, uh, but from a, even prior to the project start, things that did not work that we need to be trying to do differently, because obviously no SI wants to go in and try to repeat the same mistakes. Uh, so that the transparency that the customer can bring into the table to help set the project on the right path, it's huge and important. Um, and, and of course, SI can help in this matter, right? I mean, it's not just the customer being prepared. A lot of times there are actions that SI can take in help helping the customer be prepared by asking for information, by asking them to think. But I think the, the, the customer who's prepared is, is the one who will reach out before the SI does uh, with, hey, what can I do to be ready for you? But at the same time, I would say also the SI has some obligations and often, at least at Aperio, we had a customer checklist so that when a customer inquired even before we were ready to share something with them, we had something to to get them on the path of thinking, what, how can I get prepared to be ready to hit the road running when the project starts? Makes sense. I think it, uh, you know, it's a really good point. Customers do bring past scars to the table as well. And so mm-hmm. it's not just a matter of what didn't work last time um, and maybe why it didn't work, but also helping them get past that. Um, you know, I think uh, ultimately, you know, we all, we all bring baggage <laughs> to every relationship in an SI and a uh, customer is, is just like any other relationship. And I think sometimes understanding what's happened in the past uh, and trying to be honest about it is, is helpful if you can get there. Um, but it's not, not always easy to do, in a, certainly in a, in a, in a vendor-customer relationship. Lori, um, as you, because um, I know, you, again, with all the different practices that you've worked with as well, you've probably seen quite a bit. What mm-hmm. would you recommend for the customer 
what, what should they be asking in, in the process yeah. when it comes to not, not necessarily in the pricing or the scoping, but mm-hmm. what questions should they be asking um, about preparedness as, as, before they even sign the contract? Sure. Yeah. You know, I think that customers really need to dig into experience and asking the systems integrator, tell me stories, tell me stories about your other customers, about your other challenges. Um, You know, one of the common things that we've heard is, well, what are other people doing? What are best practices? But real, and and those are important questions, but really to ask for and elicit uh, customer stories and then asking for examples of innovative work, not just cookie cutter or um, standard sort of surface level type experience, but you know, where have you been innovative? What areas of mind do you think are right for, innovate, uh, for innovation? Um, and I think one of the other things too is asking, um, you know, where would you challenge us? You know, you've, you've learned a little bit about our business, you know where we're going, um, tell, us, tell us what we're not thinking about, tell us where we're going wrong. Um, just to sort of see how they respond and how willing your system integrator is to jump in and take a leadership role and uh, be that, uh, you know, we often talk about being the, the tour guide, not the taxi driver. So, you know, do you have an integrator who's, who's willing to and able to really drive the solution rather than just take an order and say, oh, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. Yeah, I think it uh, that also leads you to understanding. Um, I, by the way, not just any SI can have that conversation with you. Um, you know, you you've got to have the right folks at the table. And I think that as as we've all worked through sales cycles before, um, you know, it, you got to make sure you've got the right from a SI standpoint. You've got to make sure you've got the right people in the room to have that conversation. But I I do think I agree with you. It's a really good lit, litmus test for a customer to know that they're working with the right folks. Um, whether it be the right firm or actually literally the right right folks on the team as well. All right, so here's the big question. Um, if you are, customers like to buy fixed fee because they think that it, uh, you know, gives them everything they want in a, in a big bow with, uh, without the risk. Um, where do you guys stand on fixed fee versus TM? Do you think it really does benefit the customer or are there downsides to it? I actually have a good, I have a perspective on this. Um, I mean, I think there's definitely cases where fixed fee has some benefit, but I think the way the customers usually look at it is they need that fixed budget um, and that's their biggest thing. But my problem with fixed fee versus TNM is I think it pits the vendor against the customer because now you're in a situation where the customer is going to try to get absolutely as much as they can for that price. And the vendor is going to try to do get as much margin as they can for that price. Now, granted, you know, there's, there's gray areas in there, whereas T&M, I think you're more clearly working towards the same objective. And oftentimes T&M has a cap anyway, but allows you to work with the client to say, Hey, let's prioritize. And as we get into the, into this and understand kind of which, um, you know, what, what can we both do and work towards that is going to most benefit you. So I think that's the piece that often when they're thinking fixed fee, fixed fee, fixed fee, I'm not sure that they're thinking, the customer's thinking through. Yeah, it definitely can drive the wrong behaviors from your SI. Um, and and it, I think also because uh, it feels like the risk is all on the vendor, pe- uh, project teams seize up a little bit. The second you hear you're going on a fixed fee project, 
Um, you can I, you can look, you know, if you're in the room with people, when you tell them that, you can see their shoulders just tense because, you know, it, it, I think it creates a, a little bit of a different dynamic. Now, at the same time, I you know, I've seen them certainly deliver successfully um, uh, many times, but I do think it, it changes the dynamic of the relationship. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, with fixed fee, it, it really does require a certain skill in terms of managing the project um, and making sure that everybody on both sides understand that fixed fee does not mean unlimited scope. And so it's still important to have those conversations and to understand where it is that, you know, there's latitude and, and where there's not, where you still need to to look at doing a change order, for example, if it's if it's just not what was originally scoped. But I think Andrea makes a great point that those conversations, if not handled well, can certainly, you know, pit each pit the vendor against the customer. Right, Miriam, you've managed more than your share of these. Um, <laughs> you've got a grin on your face <laughs> and yeah. a gin and tonic in your hand. So uh, <laughs> don't hold back. What do you think? Well, I actually think I think it depends. I I, I think both have their merits, um, and uh, it depends on the project. Uh, so I I don't really think it's one versus the other. I think both have their merits, and the specifics around the project can drive it. Recently, I'm a huge fan of capacity based. From what I've seen, TNMs have never been TNM the way we look at it because the TNM projects oftentimes, at least in the imperial world, are structured. Uh, with a defined scope, which kind of doesn't make them TNM. It makes them more like a fixed fee more than anything else. You're making a commitment to a customer that I'm going to do X, Y, and Z in X amount of time and money. Um, so I think if it's done right, I think if TNM is truly um, a capacity model where you work with the customer, I think that's the critical part to adjust and work on what's important and what's the uh, what they find to be important at the time that you're actually doing the delivery, then I think TNM is a way to go. Wow. Uh, but we could do a whole e- whole episode just on mm-hmm. on discussion between uh, capacity and deliverable based and fixed fee and TNM. But so, are you saying yeah. that? Um, make sure I understood um, that you're a fan of fixed fee if it if it's capacity based and not deliverable based. No, I'm a fan of TNM if it's capacity-based versus because oftentimes I've seen TNM uh, statement of works structured like a fixed fee right. uh, with the exception that it's TNM, but nobody understands the TNM part, the fact that it's variable. Right. Uh, they tend to treat it like it's fixed because there's a price dollar attached to it. Uh, it's on, on The onus is on the project team, project management to manage the scope, which is not oftentimes as easy when assumptions change from the time of sales to the time of delivery. So I like the the, the, the the notion of a capacity makes a lot of sense because it's a lot easier for the customer to understand. It's the capacity. If you use the capacity differently, you're using the money, the TNM, the, the time and material is going against what you think is important. But ultimately, the capacity is being used. I may or may not be able to del- deliver the entire scope as you had specified. And I think that that the, the, the verbiage around TNM versus uh, capacity kind of changes your way of thinking around it. When I say TNM and then have a fixed scope in the statement of work, the customer thinks I'm going to deliver on it. doesn't matter how many times I veer off and ask you to do different things. But when I say capacity, then I can always go back and tell the customer, 
you use the capacity against X, Y, and Z. And they'll, they'll know, they'll know why, but then it's, it's different. And because the capacity was used against something that was unexpected, then it makes it easier to explain us why something that was initially part of the scope may no longer be able to be delivered under the same amount of dollars. Yeah, but in the end, the customer in that case is really buying uh, time um, as opposed yes. to buying deliverables. Um, I think the challenge from the customer standpoint is it's difficult for them to justify buying time um, versus buying deliverables. But yeah, you're, you're right. Even with a fixed fee project, um, customers need to understand that there may be deliverables listed in, in that, that project. But a lot of times the deliverables that are in there, they may not even want them the way that they're explained, right? I mean, as you get into, and we'll get into this more as we get into scope to deliver, but um, I mean, I think it is that ability to do the trade-offs and sometimes fixed fee does bo- box you into a corner if the customer isn't um, uh, flexible and understanding what the outcome can be. Yeah, I would right. say that there's definitely, while I, I completely agree, I think there's definitely challenges like in the customer saying would often come back saying, you know, you've done this numerous times before you should be able to tell me approximately what it's going to take to deliver all those things. So, and and under that vein, I think the one area where fixed fee probably works worth on both ends are things that are highly repeatable, you know, things, you know, more um, things that, you know, the vendors done repeatedly over and over again, and therefore the vendor is comfortable coming in kind of at a fixed fee. You're okay saying that, you know, here's what we're going to do. Um, but it's got to be kind of something that's really well boxed, which, um, yeah, I think it's almost yeah, I, commodity at that level. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mary. By definition, that throws out most custom software development. You do not exactly. I mean, and that's the problem with, you know, some of the, the, the Salesforce stuff we've done is, you know, these sales cycles go all over that. But if you think, say, maybe, you know, a knowledge based community or just some piece that, you know, here's what the front's going to look like. Here's what's going to happen, you know. And it can be very, very clear, but it's got to be, um, you know, something structured and very repeatable. And they have to expect they're going to get what they get, right? Not their whole custom solution. <laughs> and I think that also yeah. starts to get into the delivery model and the delivery efficiency, because uh, if you look at our, our old CDM model, that's what that was geared towards, right? There's something that we've done many times. Yeah. Um, we're able to deliver it more effectively because we've got it templatized. Um, and we also can use um, not as expensive resources because much of the uh, kind of the strategy pieces of it have been predefined. Um, I think the uh, the challenges, and again, as we get into some of the later phases of these this series, we'll get into this a little bit more, but most systems integrators don't do a very good job of templatizing things. Even things they do over and over, I do think that's something that Aperio has done very well with, with the assets um, and things that we can reuse, but... Um, it is a, it's a hard muscle to use because that costs money, right? I mean, it costs money yeah. to make things reusable. Lori, I would definitely agree that most don't do that because it it's, yeah. takes work and money. And also it takes uh, uh, some horizontal of sorts to be able to detect the commonalities, right? I mean, I think oftentimes services companies tend to work project-based. So there isn't that horizontal arm that can't even detect this commonality that's happening. So I totally agree. I think Aperio definitely was very innovative in the way they approached it. It's a kind of common thing that you see within the products companies. You tend to have common libraries. Uh, but to see and uh, utilize that in a services group, I think it's definitely very innovative. But it does take time and money and people who can go across. Yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Lori, here's um, a question for you. If you are uh, working on a contract, you're now in the contracting phase, 
and um, you're you know you've got the first first red line version of the contract that's been handed over to you and you're the customer, what should you look for in the contract from a delivery perspective? I mean, what should that customer be looking for to know that a, you're, you're aligning the same things um, and that, that you're as a customer going to be prepared and getting what you, what you expected. Yeah. So I think the, the biggest thing is just making sure that there is a schedule of deliverables spelled out um, that it's not just a blanket statement that says, uh, something generic like customization of Salesforce, right? <laughs> that it's very specific and that there are deliverables at a pacing that makes sense. I mean, you don't want to have just one giant deliverable at the end. You want to be able to have uh, certain checkpoints in order to be able to make sure that you're on track. That makes sense. Andrew, what do you think? Um, I think also is. You know, and sometimes it's a bit of fluff, um, but one of the key things you, we, you know, we should ask as a system implementer is, you know, what does success look like? Where are you trying to be a year from now? Um, and, and kind of understanding what that is, because that helps drive kind of what the deliverables and the timeline and the various things are, you know, so something along those lines, um, obviously specific scope, I agree with, um, probably the other piece is assumptions as somebody who's written a lot of contracts, look very closely through the assumptions. Cause I, I know even I've buried a lot of stuff in there that, and make sure you ask questions if you don't understand kind of what it means, because there's various things, you know, a lot of assumptions are boundaries just so that, you know, if you say we're going to add four fields and you ask for 7,000, you know, we've got a boundary. It doesn't mean we won't add six. Right. Um, but some of them probably don't make a lot of sense and just be very clear. Um, but also the other big piece I think is the division of labor. And this is something I like to put in contracts is clearly outline what our team as the vendor is going to do and what is your team expected to do? And an example, you know, like a data migration will often tell the customer that they got it. They got to extract all the data. They're responsible for cleaning it. They're responsible for the transformation, et cetera, et cetera. So have a clear understanding of what, you know, what is your team going to be expected to do versus what is the vendor going to be expected to do? So just to pile on the assumptions as, as somebody who's reviewed hundreds of statements of work, that's actually the first place I go. That's, That's exactly what I was thinking too, because Laura. I can tell how well um, whoever scoped it paid attention um, based on <laughs> how de- how precise those assumptions are. And by the way, I mean, it's not a matter of protecting the SI. It's as much a matter of protecting the customer as well. Because if the assumptions aren't spelled out, then, um, then you know, a lot of it may be tacit. And the more that you can put there, the better. Which actually leads me to my last question on this topic, and that is, how detailed should the statement of work be? I mean, especially, Miriam, you're talking before about capacity buys versus deliverable buys. Um, you know, if, if you are signing a large contract for capacity base, I mean, how detailed does that need to be? Yeah, that's an interesting question because oftentimes the project teams who deliver want the specifics. But we all know it's uh, very hard to get the level of specifics in a very short period of time in order for that information to be valid. Um, so it needs to be detailed enough that gives the team direction. Um, I'd like to see an overall scope to, to have an idea of what the overall direction is. What is it that the customer wants to do? But we all know that it, it, you can't get to a level of detail that's going to make a person go and actually figure out, oh, I got to do a discovery on this specific thing and be able to deliver on it. Um, uh, so it, it's definitely a hard thing to answer, but uh, I would say a coverage across all the key parts of a, uh, a project, uh, the applicant.
education level, integrations, data migrations, training. Um, I think those are the specific things that are coming to mind. But at the, at the high level, you got to be very clear on what's expected out of those. And within each of those roles and responsibilities, what is a customer going to do? What is it that you're going to do to be able to achieve those goals? Um, I think it's, 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 again, not just for the SI's sake, but it is also for the customer's sake. Oftentimes, at that statement of work, at least for the initial initial uh, part of the project becomes that contractual agreement on really what we said we, were, we wanted and what is it that we can deliver. Uh, but beyond that, when you get too specific, like I want to see these five fields, that's un unreasonable for a project of, uh, you know, year long millions of dollars, just because things change. Most oftentimes the customers change their mind. Not only that, at the time that you use statement of work, you kind of like trivialize a lot of stuff. You think, you know, everything you need to know. Businesses change, customers change. Um, so there is a certain level of adaptability that needs to be accounted for. And if it becomes too specific, then we're talking about too much time spent in trying to manage to that statement of work, change orders and that kind of a dialogue, especially depending on the relationship between the SI and the customer, that I think is wasted time. But at the same time, if it's too broad and too high level, then what's, what is our agreement? What are we really working towards? Yeah, I mean, the overhead associated with, with some of these, I, I've personally seen, you know, 100-page contracts, and it, the overhead associated with managing them is, is, isn't worth it, which actually, this is a great topic, and I think we're starting to get into some of the topics we'll also dive into a bit more on the on the scope to delivery front, but um, this is a, a great uh, I guess, place to kind of cap it, because uh, our next episode, we're going to be talking about change orders um, and how to approach them, and um, you segued perfectly into that. And so, yeah, our next, uh, our lead to order, our third, uh, third episode in the lead to order series will be about change orders and will be our next topic. And so that takes us into our lightning round, uh, some, some fun conversations. So here's, here's my question for you guys. Um, how do you start your day? That's easy. <laughs> I mean, I work out in the morning <laughs> and then says, says the endurance athlete. My day. Yeah. yeah how do you so your day? I generally, I get out of bed, go to the gym or go for a run, whichever I'm doing or swim or bike or whatever I'm doing that day. Um, and then come home and I try to shower. I have to shower immediately. So do that. Coffee and email are next, unless I have a meeting or an immediate call or something. So coffee after you work out? Yeah, I don't eat or drink anything before I work out. So actually, okay, so to be specific, I usually come home, I make myself my green smoothie, and then I drink that while I'm showering and doing whatever. Then I look at email, then I get my coffee. Oh, that's brave. <laughs> I've, I've gone, I've done various things. I, we can get into, we can do a whole topic on workouts and stuff, but um, yeah, I've done will. various things. And when I'm doing more endurance, when I'm doing longer stuff, I definitely I'll have something in my stomach, but um, I prefer now to actually just roll out of bed and go. So yeah, I don't eat or drink until actually a little ways after, but the green smoothie is key. And Lori, how about you? So I'll get up and um, if it's nice, I'll go out onto the patio, but I'll do um, some reading and meditating just to start off on a, hopefully a serene note for the day. Um, but then I'll go into um, the gym and work out and which I've now sort of converted the garage to, to a gym so that I don't have to to uh, to 
commute there. And I can pop in every 15 minutes and start seeing if the teenagers are up and out of bed. <laughs> so um, getting uh, my son and our exchange student ready for school is still um, a priority. And I have just probably three more weeks of driving Jonah to school before he doesn't need me to take him to school anymore. So he'll turn oh 16. Yeah. Permit. So that's going to change my morning routine. Um, but I after I drop to get him, him out of bed though. Exactly. I know. <laughs> um, and then after I drop him off, I get coffee on the way home and then come in to, to start my day. And one of the things that I do when I sit down to my laptop is just to say to myself, let me be useful today. And that's a bit of a shift from what I used to do in years past, which was, you know, especially if I had a big day coming up or I was nervous about something, it'd be, you know, like, oh, just let me get through this day or let me not screw this up, you know, let me <laughs> just very focused on just sort of how I was going to do uh, when approaching my day. And now I just let go of all of that and just say, let me be useful. And I think that's such a simple way of getting myself out of my head and my expectations. And that's probably a little bit of a teaser for uh, the Lori Asbury special session on mindfulness in the workplace, right? That's right. I love that. I can't wait to hear how, how you can keep yourself focused to do that. That's great. <laughs> a lot of breathing. <laughs> It'll be fun. It'll be fun. Hey, Miriam, how about you? Um, I, I, I guess it's a kind of a mix of interesting mix of what I heard Andrea and Lori say, but not the the mindfulness part. But uh, <laughs> I, I do wake up and I actually have my phone next to my bed, which is not a surprise to Andrea. So I do a quick scan of my emails, uh, but then I'm off to getting the you know kind of getting lunches with the kids ready. Um, so then I do drop off. I drop off one of my daughters, and then I head on to the gym. So, and I don't eat anything beforehand, much like Andrea. I think sometimes it's just a matter of time. I just don't really, I recently have started having a protein shake because um, I was trying to figure out whether I kind of have a different kind of performance depending when I eat or not. But for the longest time, I would uh, go completely with nothing, uh, no coffee, nothing else. And then lately I've started kind of experimenting a little bit but then i hit the gym uh, a couple of days a week i've got my trainer the other times i just do cardio meet up with friends and then i'm back back at my desk uh, my day starts on eastern east coast times around 9 15 i don't i've blocked the first hour of my time because i'm not an early bird i cannot do any early school drop off 9 15 is really where i sit on my desk and i pretty much don't move as much beyond that but that's how i get my day started I like that. So I, um, uh, I think I'm probably the opposite of all you guys in lots of ways. I'm definitely not a morning person, um, <laughs> at all, but I've gotten a lot better about uh, checking the phone first thing in the morning. And when I, when I was living in London, I didn't really have a choice because there was so much that would happen overnight that I was always terrified, you know, if, if I went too long without out looking to see what happened. But I've actually put a discipline, uh, where I don't touch my phone for 30 minutes after I wake up, I have to have coffee immediately and mm -hmm. have to. Um, I tend to watch the news a little bit, and uh, but I cannot work out in the morning. I do um, if I don't have another choice, but I think it's I'm a klutz, and I'm afraid I'm going to fall off the treadmill or I don't know. I, I just I don't uh, I don't exercise as well in the morning as I do in the afternoon, and uh, it's um, it's harder for me. And you know, to your point on protein, this is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, I have been having trouble kind of losing weight and. Uh, I, I've been tracking my food and I was talking to my doctor and 
I, she realized I wasn't getting enough protein. When I changed my protein intake right before and right after my workout, it made a huge difference in my ability to lose weight. I mean, oh, interesting. I mean, I didn't do it. Actually, I found these protein water drinks um, yeah. because I don't like yogurt or I, I'm not a big dairy person, but um, uh, it, it really made a, a big difference. And I've only been doing a couple weeks, but, uh, it, you know, it, it, anyway, just something to think about. Um, so to be fair, I've tried both of them and I've done a lot of reading on all this and this could be a whole podcast level. So the, the fasting thing is only right at the moment. Cause I've been playing with the intermittent fasting, which is a whole other topic, yep. <laughs> but to your point, I think there is definitely value in, um, in, in having the protein before too, but go ahead. Oh no, I agree. So here's, here's my question. If you guys have like a really, you know, a high performance day, like you've got a stressful meeting or an important meeting or a big interview or a big race, Andrea, do you have a different routine for those days? Well, I definitely have a different routine on race days. Yes, but that's a totally <laughs> <laughs> What would it be for a race day? Uh, it depends on the race. So if I'm doing a, like a true endurance race, um, like an Ironman or a half Ironman, I mean, the start for those are usually at like seven in the morning. So you're up at four. Um, you want to, for a particular, a long distance race, you need to get something in your, you need to get a decent amount of calories, but you have to do it two or three hours before the race. So I'm up at four, I'll have a breakfast, you know, and then it's packing up and getting your stuff together and getting to the race and various things like that. So, um, and there's, yeah, there's no checking of email or uh, I will have coffee. Um, but yeah, I don't, I'll turn work off for sure for things like th- those level of races for sure. That's great. And so I love the juxtaposition of starting with Andrea, then going to Lori. Cause it's like yin and yang. <laughs> <laughs> there's no mindfulness. Oh, wait, 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 no, sorry. On a, for like an Ironman level race, I do do some vision stuff. I've learned to do, you know, vision yourself through the day. Um, what it's going to look like and things like that. And it, it does actually help. So that may be the one and only time where I have some mindfulness. <laughs> See, <laughs> you have so much weight. <laughs> How am I going to get my body to move? For you just, yeah. So. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I mean, so the thing with me is that I am not a creature of habit. And so I described a typical day and I, and I really do try to stick to that framework, but I'm not stuck on having to do a certain um, routine every day. And so I'm very kind of go with the flow. And, um, you know, if there is something that requires a different schedule, then I'm okay with that. It doesn't, it doesn't throw me off. I will say something that Miriam said sparked, um, something for me in that I tried to actually protect the first hour in my workday on my calendar. So that I have a way to come into the workday in a more organized manner. I'm also a big list person. So at the end of the day, before the next day, I try to look at the day ahead and the week ahead. And I've tried a lot of different applications online and tools to doing that. And I do use you know, Google uh, Calendar, certainly, and, and Google Docs and so forth. But I found a written list and trying to keep a, a look ahead at a high level is really helpful. And so protecting that hour for me is really helpful. So if I have a big event, you know, I, I certainly don't have the luxury of doing that. Or if I have a meeting that has to be done first thing in the morning, then it, it does throw it off a little bit. But you know, again, I'm sort of go with the flow and, oh, okay, <laughs> this is the way we're doing it today. Got it. <laughs> I love that. I think the, the thing with lists too, for me, I, I've tried all different listing tools, 
but there's something for me about physically writing it, not even typing it, yeah. but physically writing it that I remember it better. Um, but that's the only way I think I can keep any sanity um, because I just, you know, I mean, I tend to be a little ADD anyway. Um, well, and then you get the added bonus of being able to cross it off the list. I, there's such power in that for me of striking through. And yes, I will often write down things I've already done just so I can cross write it off. Them off. I love <laughs> you that. Know, you know what's kind of ironic, though, is I've known you guys now for close to a decade and worked with you for most of the time. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever seen any of your handwriting. If you guys all wrote something down, I don't believe I could tell whose was whose. Lori <laughs> Williams, I don't think I've ever seen your handwriting for sure. <laughs> and you were my boss for how many years? <laughs> I, I don't even know if you guys are right or left-handed. Oh my gosh! Well, that could be a whole series too. It would work remote. What do you really know about a person? Exactly. I'm like, literally, we've worked together for almost ten years. And well, clearly, we missed the opportunity to make lists for you. So, <laughs> or write me notes or cards or something. Oh, gosh. Note to self, send Andrea a handwritten letter. <laughs> Don't expect hey. one in return. <laughs> so, Miriam, do you have a special routine for uh, either challenging or high performance days? Every day for you is high performance. So, <laughs> well, there's I the there. Like, I just say that, like, yeah, that's if I could. Um, no, I, I, you know what? To be, it's funny. I think as I've aged, I feel like uh, it's all a mind game. So like, I don't want to stress over high performing days. Like I want to, I want to be in my own domain. I want to be able to do it. Like, I don't, I don't want to do anything special to be able to be ready to do it. I think it's taken me some time to get there, but I feel like, I feel I'm starting to shake off that nervousness. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I think I just mentioned before the call, I, I had an interview type of a call. I was trying to figure out in my head, like how it's such a foreign thing. I haven't done this for a long time. Like, how do I prepare for it? Like, should I be nervous? Should I be ready? Should I be sitting down? Should I be? Um, but I decided the best thing was for me to buy, do my normal thing. And it was kind of hard to get distracted because I have a tendency to want to plan and be ready. I think being ready is important to me. I think laying uh, down like the gin I, and tonic is probably the best way to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, because we cannot always do that at 8 a.m. in the morning. But like, if I feel I'm ready, and I think it's important to me, someone says you got to go do something, I I don't do well with like ad hoc. Like, hey, Miriam, by the way, do you want to go present on something in five minutes? That will not sit well with me. But if I know I'm going to do something, it's important to me to be prepared for it. So I tend to do the homework beforehand. And now I'm starting to get to a point of like, can I be mentally ready to do anything in a much more ad hoc fashion as opposed to having to prepare for it? Mm-hmm. So I think I'm starting to make, yeah, I think I'm starting to make that transition, uh, but no, I don't do anything special. I don't do any jumping on a trampoline or, uh, so, uh, the, I mean, <laughs> so where this question came from, um, a number of years ago, when I was at Lotus, there was a sales rep. She was very, very good. Her name was Linda Winkle. And, um, she had, this is, I'm not making this up. She had two different parking places <clears throat> on days, the just normal days she would park in one parking place. But if she needed to get a deal closed, there was this special parking place on this other floor that she would go park her car in. And that, so I knew when I went into the office, if Linda had parked on this other floor in this space, that she was closing a deal that day. Um, and so, I mean, but, and it worked almost every time. And, and uh, that, you know, it seems a, a little esoteric, but 
Um, I, so my thing is, I, uh, Lori, I'm trying to take a, a note from you in your book, and I really am trying to, if, if I've got something I need to focus on, I'm really trying to meditate, which is hard for me to sit still. I'm up to 10 minutes, so I, I think I'm doing better. Um, but I have, um, and this is actually a topic for, for a longer topic for another day. Cause I'd love to know your answers to this as well. But, um, I actually have a, a soundtrack that if I need to pump myself up and it changes depending, you know, I move songs on and off of it. Cause you guys know I'm pretty musical. Um, there are certain songs that if I listen to them, they either build confidence or, you know, they make me feel a little bit more, more positive or whatever. Um, and I, I, I try to, uh, try to find the right music before I go into any big conversation or I used to do this in London a lot cause I'd be in the tube and, um, you know, if I was going to a stressful customer situation, there was a certain, you know, five songs that I would make myself listen to cause it kind of helps me zone out and helps me from the meditation standpoint. Um, but I do not park my car in different places. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the last question for this uh, episode. I think we've actually been texting about this, so uh, hopefully you've already kind of thought about it a little bit. But if you could, for our audience, recommend one podcast to listen to, what would it be? Just one? Just one. <laughs> we can, you know, this can be an ongoing series. And, Andrea, I know you probably have 12. but Yeah, I mean, it depends on what you're – so I think probably the one would be the, um, the story-based ones, like the serial and now the S-Town, the one – that I got very hooked on because um, it kind of gets into it. But the difference is those are more story-based versus all these other informative-based, but um, definitely Serial, if you haven't listened to it. And then S-Town, the new one, is pretty fascinating. Miriam, how about you? I think That's since Andrew took the story one, then I guess I got to take the one that is actually instructive. Uh, so <laughs> she got me hooked. You both got me hooked on Tim Ferriss. I really enjoy him. Uh, but I also realized that how much I miss the story one, the storytelling one. So I love the balance of the two because one can really get mundane. I and mean, there's only so much you can do to improve your life. Um, and, you know, that, like, <laughs> I think the story one, it just kind of takes you to a different place. I would say Tim Ferriss has been, um, love the fact that there's so many different, uh, he's got so many episodes that there's a little bit of something for everyone. I would agree. I think it's been a big influence on the podcasting community in general. Lori, how about you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are those are great ones. Um, the one that I'm focusing on right now is the Moth Radio Hour because I love uh, storytelling, and the Moth is actually coming to Huntsville in July, so I'm excited about that. We had Science uh, Friday last year, so this year we get the Moth Radio Hour. But um, one of the other things, <laughs> sorry, Lori, I'm terrible at following uh, rules, especially when you told us we only could do one. Uh, Andrea did more than one, so I'm going to do more than one. Um, but I'm doing Up First, which is NPR's new 10-minute uh, podcast at the beginning of the day. I think they posted it like 4 or 5 a.m. And it's uh, just the stories, the big stories for the day from politics to pop culture. And it's got uh, Rachel Martin, David Green, and Steve Engsky. So that's a good way for me to kind of dive into what's going on. I like that. That's a good one. So I may break my own rule too and say too. I mean, all the ones you guys have mentioned, I have not done S Town yet, and I need to. Um, uh, but the other ones, uh, I, I, I certainly would endorse as well. So I have two. One is one that I've actually been it, probably the first podcast I ever listened to, and I've been listening to podcasts for I don't know seven eight years. Um, is Left Right and Center from KCRW, 
in uh, Santa Monica. And the reason is that I think it's one of the few podcasts that really does, and you guys know I've kind of been on this little bit of a political bent lately, but it's one of the few podcasts or shows that really does address all sides of an issue. Um, and I think there's so little of that today uh, in so many of the conversations that uh, it's good. And this is an oldie. I mean, it's a radio show that's been out there for a long time that they release in podcast form. And then the second one is a spinoff of, uh, not a spinoff, but one that I heard about on uh, Ted, uh, uh, Ted, Tim Ferriss, uh, Debbie Millman. Um, she does a, a conversation with him about designing your life, and she has her own podcast uh, which is really interesting, and uh, again, I think maybe it's a topic for another day. But just it, it's what's gotten me thinking in the last couple of year, a couple of months, really about what do I want in ten years, and how do I start now to design it. So those would be my two for the day. So that brings us to the end of episode number three. Join us next time as we continue the discussion on the life cycles of professional services firms, and we'll be talking about the exciting topic of change orders and budget changes and all the madness that goes on with that. We hope you'll join us again on an upcoming episode. But in the meantime, visit our website at realtechreallife.com, check out our episode guide, and leave us comments and feedback and questions that you'd like to have us answer in future episodes. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher.